Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, July 7th, 2015. All right, we have to do our light episode today. My apologies for having to do it a day early. However, I do hold the pastoral office, and I had some pastoral duties that I needed to tend to today. Gladly so. As a result of it, I had to move our light episode to Tuesday. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up our Bibles and, you know, do the exegetical comparative Berean-type work to see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group materials we need to be consuming and studying during our small group periods, you know, things like that, to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says or if they're twisting God's Word, mangling it, engaging in bad hermeneutics, and, you know, generally teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach. So uh, what we're going to do today, like I've hinted at, more than hinted at, quite explicitly stated, we're going to do our light episode today. Once a week we do a light episode. It's not that it's the topic is light, and this is not a light lecture, if you would. Uh, it's that uh, we deal with a singular topic. Uh, you, you know, we'll listen to a Bible study, a lecture, you know, things like that, and uh, pull it all in. And, and, you know, this is your time to, if you would, listen to a good lecture on the topic. I have no idea if this is a good lecture because, once again, this is me talking. And uh, we're going to be listening to Roseboro's Ramblings on the uh, Office of Pastor Part 2. This is the uh, second of two lectures that I delivered at Reformation Montana a couple of weeks ago. And so this, you know, this one actually works with the last one. And it is a little bit controversial, if you would. Uh, we're going to be talking about some things that uh, not very... Um, popular, but I think need to be said, but I'm not overstating the case, and uh, I think you'll get the point. So without any further ado, here is part A of part two. Yeah, we're going to cut this up into two pieces today, uh, you know, of uh, Roseboro's ramblings on the pastoral office from my lectures at Reformation Montana 2015. Here we go. Now, if you remember yesterday, we talked about the scripture passages that reveal that the pastoral office is indeed an office. I made the contention that the church is not a movement, it's an institution, instituted by God with, well, offices. 
Pastors are office holders sent by God and made pastors by the Holy Spirit. There are qualifications for holding this office, and there are clearly defined duties for those who are placed by God in this office. This is to review of what we talked about yesterday. And I need to remind you all, unless you all get together with a good full quorum and vote, you can't overturn yesterday's vote, you have allowed me to be controversial. So, I will continue to strive in that, in that department. Which then begs the question, are there people today who claim to be pastors who are not sent from God? Why don't you think about that for a second? Let me give you a couple of examples. Many of you know that I am, well, friends with a particular ELCA pastor by the name of Nadia Bolsweber. Let's just say we have theologically different opinions, and we kind of do this when we talk. Well, let me read to you from her book, Pastrix, which, by the way, is a term I did coin. And I didn't mean it as a term of endearment. just wanted to let you all know that. Um, she talks about what she believes is her call to the ministry. And let me read from her book. She says, much later, in my mid-30s, was when I realized that what I really wanted more than anything was to be a pastor to my people. Preferably young, urban, and then she uses a word I should not recite here, uh, who wanted something more than the, the categories of late-stage capitalism to tell them who they are. I had, through the right combination of time, sobriety, and therapy, ceased being angry about the fundamentalism of my childhood, but there was one problem with my being a pastor. I'm a lousy candidate, to which I would say, no, you're a woman. But she says, I swear like a truck driver, I'm covered in tattoos, I'm kind of selfish, nothing about me says Lutheran pastor. So I was scared. I was scared about the fact that in order for me to be the kind of pastor I would want to be, I would need to look at some of my own personal stuff, which I was perfectly happy ignoring. I struggled with the idea of being a spiritual leader. I struggled with knowing I don't really like emotionally needy people. And given the opportunity, I would walk the other way if I see them coming. I struggled with being available to people all the time when, they, when really I'm slightly misanthropic. I struggled with many things, but despite my upbringing, what I didn't struggle with was my gender. Now, I'm going to point something out here. Aside from her gender, has she said anything here that would disqualify her from being a pastor? Yeah, she has. So her gender is not just the single thing that stands in the way of her being a pastor. Now, remember, God's word says that pastoral office is an office. It has qualifications. And she has clearly stated, and just in these few words here, confessed to not being qualified biblically to be a pastor. Uh, this has nothing to do with her gender, right? So she said, she continues. Okay? I struggled with many things, but despite my upbringing, what I didn't struggle with was my gender. My calling to be a pastor, while still shocking, had become less and less ambiguous and even started to feel precious to me. She believed she had received a calling from God to be a pastor. 
This is how she's talking. That's why I didn't want to tell my parents. I was experiencing a feeling of purpose, perhaps for the first time in my life. And the last thing I wanted was for them to squash it. And yet, they had to know at some point. So on a Saturday in November of 2005, I sat my parent in my parents' living room on their brocade overstuffed sofa. And while they stared at the brand new tattoo of Mary Magdalene that now covered my forearm, I confessed, and not very elegantly, I, um, I'm really enjoying seminary, and I need to tell you that I've changed my degree track from an academic degree to a pastoral degree. Uh, see, I'm, I feel like maybe God is calling me to start a church, and I guess I think maybe I'm supposed to be a pastor to my people, but I'm scared, and well, I am, but, um, yeah. This is what she said to her parents. Notice what she said, God is calling me to be a pastor. That's a feeling she had. Can we go to the objective word of God to confirm whether or not that feeling truly was God, the Holy Spirit, speaking to her? Isn't, well, in today's world, Christianity, right? As soon as somebody says, God told me, that pretty much ends the argument, doesn't it? Well, God told you. Well, you know, who am I to challenge God? You know, I had goose pimples. That proves it. Right? So notice she's dealing with a subjective feeling. The subjective feeling is that God has called her into the ministry. She's trying to break the news to her parents. And yet, just in the few paragraphs I've read thus far, is there any objective reason to believe that God was calling her into the ministry? No. Let me read a little bit more. I had no idea if any of this made sense, but it was being spoken. I was terrified that they would reject the idea and shame me for my disregard for the scriptures. Notice that she admits there that she is disregarding what the scriptures say. She was afraid that her parents would scold her for that. But by saying those words, she is admitting she's disregarding what the scripture says. I was terrified they would reject the idea and shame me for my disregard for the scriptures which forbid a woman to teach. And I wasn't sure what felt worse, the possibility of them shaming me or the fact that they still could. Well, at that moment, my father silently stood up, walked to the bookshelf, took down his worn, leather-bound Bible... Here we go, I thought. He's going to beat me with the scripture stick. He opened it up and read. I could tell from where he was turning that it wasn't one of Paul's letters at the end of the book, but something closer to the middle. My father did not read the first Timothy passage about women being silent in the church. He read from Esther. From my father, I heard only these words, but you were born for such a day as this. He closed the book and my mother joined him in embracing me. They prayed over me, and they gave me a blessing. Does the book of Esther, in that particular verse, you were born for such a day as this, overturn the pastoral epistles? So notice what happened here. We uh, basically have decided that we're going to, well, ignore the clear passages... 
And, well, label anybody who uses those passages as somebody who's beating somebody with a scripture stick. Oh, who wants that? And so we're going to go to a new passage, a new book, the book of Esther. You were born for such a time as this. Well, it's from the Bible. It was a precious moment. It was a sentimental, sentimental moment, one where a family came together and prayed. Was this a Christian moment? Was the Bible being rightly used? No, it wasn't. So my question is this. Has Nadia Bowles-Weber been sent by God? Has the Holy Spirit made her a pastor? No. Absolutely not. Under no circumstances are we to believe this, because to believe her subjective experience and God's word twisted is to overthrow the clear passages of Scripture. Which means, I can point to people who are pastors, and we have to put air quotes around them, because they haven't been sent. So when a pastor who is teaching false doctrine, when a pastor is fleecing his sheep, when a pastor is not qualified to be in the ministry, and you critique their doctrine, and they say, thou shalt not touch God's anointed, right? Our response should be, God never called you. God never anointed you. You were never, ever qualified to be in the office of pastor. You see how this now works? When you understand that there's an office, that there are qualifications, and that there are duties, you can now ask the question, is this person who I'm listening to, who claims to be a pastor, was he truly sent by God? Was he truly sent by the Holy Spirit? The answer is no, if the person's life and doctrine and qualifications show that he doesn't meet the duties of the pastoral office. So let me give you an easy one. We're kind of, we're doing, we did some lab work, or we, actually we did some lecture work, now we're doing some lab work, right? So if a man has not studied and showed himself approved, notice I said man, he has no skill in teaching sound doctrine, but over and again demonstrates that he does not know how to properly wield God's word, is on his third marriage because he cheated on his first two wives, drives a Bentley, but, claims, but he claims that he received a vision from God to start a church that does church for the unchurched. And his church has grown to five multi-site campuses across the country with over 22,000 people in attendance each weekend for their worship experiences. Has that man been sent by God? Has the Holy Spirit made him a pastor? No. Absolutely not. And see, that's kind of the sticky wicket here. How many of these vision-casting leaders in these seeker-driven megachurches have never actually been ordained, have never actually studied and showed themselves approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, but who can rightly handle the word of truth. How many of these men have actually received a call? Right? How many of them have just put themselves forward? There's a difference between being called and putting yourself forward. It's the difference of coming in through the door of the sheep, you know, the sheepfold, or climbing the fence. How many of these pastors have climbed the fence? Nadia Bowles Weber is a fence climber. That's exactly what she is. So are so many of these secret-driven guys. Now, 
I know I'm in a room full of Baptists. If you will forgive me, I would like to quote from the uh, Augsburg Confession. I know it's a Lutheran confession. I, I promise not to baptize any of your babies, okay? In the Augsburg Confession, which is really the first confession put forward in the Reformation, this is, this is the one, I mean, things were so heated, the Lutherans were basically called on the carpet, you know, given accounting, what it is you believe teaching, confessing, oh, and you, Luther, you don't get to be there, because if you show up, we'll kill you. So Melanchthon got to present it. And there's an article in there, Article 4. Article 4 is the one on justification by grace through faith. This is the article that Luther says, this is the one on which the church either stands or falls. Let me read for you. Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession. It is taught among us that we cannot obtain the forgiveness of sin and righteousness before God by our own merits, works, or satisfactions, but that we receive forgiveness of sin and become righteous before God by grace, for Christ's sake, through faith, when we believe that Christ suffered for us, and that for his sake our sin is forgiven and righteousness and eternal life are given to us. For God will regard and reckon this faith as righteousness, as Paul says in Romans 3, 21 through 26, in chapter 4, verse 5. To which all of you Baptists said, Amen. Right? Right. Now, it's interesting to note this, that the article on which the church either stands or falls, Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession, is intimately and inextricably linked to Article 5 in the Augsburg Confession. Let me read to you that article. Here's what it says. To obtain such faith. Ah, there it is. So there's saving faith. Grace through faith, right? To obtain such faith, God has instituted the office of the ministry. That is, to provide the gospel. And we use the word sacraments. I know you guys use the word ordinance. So just me. You know, don't freak out here. I'm not a Roman Catholic. But God has given us the gospel and the sacraments. Through these, as through means, he gives the Holy Spirit who works faith where and when he pleases for those who hear the gospel. And the gospel teaches that we have a gracious God, not by our own merits, but by the merit of Christ when we believe this. And here's an interesting one. Sentence 4 in Article 5. Condemned are the Anabaptists and others who teach that the Holy Spirit comes to us through our own preparations, thoughts, and works without the external word of God. That's exactly what uh, Abendroth was talking about in his lecture. Talking about direct revelation. You know, as a confessional Lutheran, I am confessionally bound to reject any man claiming to have received a direct vision from God that he has to then cast to his church. All vision casting leaders are condemned and ruled out as part of the office of the ministry. But you'll notice here then that justification by grace through faith is linked then to the office of the ministry, because how is it that the church grows? God sends preachers, teachers, those who hold the offices and fulfill the duties of those offices to make disciples, to baptize, to teach. It's all inextricably linked. God works through, well, men. This is what he's chosen to do. God did not choose for the gospel to come to you through the preaching of angels probably would kill you anyway. Yeah, I know there's a good reason why I haven't had an encounter with an angel, because, well, it would leave me dead. You know, I'm just not that healthy. 
You know, you see some of those commercials they have for particular pills that you can buy that are blue. You know, make sure that you're healthy, healthy enough for that. I'm not healthy enough for an encounter with an angel. It would kill me. So God hasn't chosen for angels to preach the gospel. God has chosen for men to preach the gospel. And he sends preachers. So the office of the ministry is important because the men whom God sent, you know what they're going to do? They're going to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. They're going to preach law, gospel, sin, grace. And they're going to look you in the eye and say that you are a wretched sinner. That you do not measure up. You have nothing, absolutely nothing to offer to God. Repent of your wickedness. Repent of your self-righteousness. In fact, here's the idea if you really want to understand the scandal of true biblical grace. God didn't just die for your worst sin. He died for your best good work. Because even your best good work still stinks of sin. Right? That's the scandal of it. So drop everything. Stop holding up even your good works and saying, I've earned something from you, God. No, you have not. Repent and receive the perfect and sufficient work of Christ done for you for your forgiveness, for your right standing before God, and then bear fruit in keeping with repentance, because you are in Him, right? And all of this comes through preachers, does it not? And so that's the idea, justification. If you believe in justification by grace through faith, it's also important that you believe that God has sent pastors, and that they fill an office. So that's kind of the idea. Now. We're going to spend a little bit of time, and I promise I'm not trying to pick on Baptists, but we're going to talk about Ed Stetzer and Tom Rainer. Is anyone not comfortable with this? If you're not comfortable, you can leave. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm going to talk about Ed Stetzer and Mike Dodson first. In their book, Come Back to Churches, yeah. Ed Stetzer apparently is a church growth guru with a couple of failed churches under his belt. Weird. But um, they're, they're, they're key thought leaders in the seeker-driven movement. And these guys express their belief, which is almost identical to Andy Stanley's. Remember when we talked about Andy Stanley? That the scriptures do not reveal a standard biblical ecclesiology which would be binding on all churches. Instead, Stetzer and Dodson argue that what is important is, in a church is that it has some form of leadership. That's all that really matters. Here's what they say in their book, Comeback Churches. Churches need leadership. The fact is obvious in the New Testament. There are differences in those leadership positions, titles and roles, but leadership is an integral part of God's plan for the church. The New Testament speaks of elders, bishops, pastors, deacons, evangelists, prophets, and apostles, and the church may have organized itself differently in different places and at different times, but the churches were organized and, and, and led by leaders. Does that sound like he's arguing for a proper understanding of the biblical ecclesiology revealed in Scripture? No, it's just, you just need some kind of, you know, leader model-ish thingy, right? So it's clear from this quote that rather than see the elders, pastors, deacons as filling standing offices within the church established by God, Stetzer and Dodson instead believe that God has established generic leadership positions within the church 
that traditional pastors and deacons, well, that's one way in which a church could manifest and express the church's leadership positions. And so he further explained that what is needed in order for a biblical church to exist are not biblical or scripturally revealed offices in their thinking. Leadership is a matter of how we do things and is therefore a matter of Christian freedom. Instead, they insist that what is needed is, well, you know, some form of leadership structure whose responsibility it is to execute on what isn't negotiable in a biblical church. You know, like preaching, teaching, and ordinances. Here's what they say. Ecclesiology, this is a quote, Ecclesiology is not a blank slate taken from the cultural situation. Certain things need to be in place for a biblical church to exist, such as some form of leadership structure, and of course the practices of ordinances. Certainly how we do some of these things is determined by the context, but... What we do is determined by the scripture. Does that sound like a good exegesis of the pastoral epistles to you? Doesn't sound like it to me. And Stetzer and Dodson, whose book, again, Come to Back Churches, is about helping churches that have stagnated, helps them revitalize themselves and grow. On, they go on to explain that comeback churches, that, that would be healthy, numerically growing churches, must have missional leaders. Not men filling in, you know, fulfilling functions of the pastoral office. You know, and these missional leaders, they ask the question, what cultural containers, church worship style, small group ministry, will be most effective in this cultural context? Cultural containers. Are those like the large bins that you keep your, you know, that you're stuffing in your basement? Yeah, I, you know, what is a cultural container? So in Stetzer and Dodson's way of thinking, the church's leadership structure should be determined by which one will help it best connect with its community. And this fact is borne out in uh, one of their illustrations called the Missional Matrix. And it's, it's a pretty basic uh, you know, illustration they have there. Basically, think of it as a pyramid. At the top of the pyramid is the word Christology. Off to one side is ecclesiology. And over the other side, at the bottom of the pyramid, it says missiology. So at the top, it says Christology. Who is Jesus and what has he sent us to do is the question, which I think is a fair question. Um, and then you get down to the missiology portion of the pyramid, and it says, what forms and strategies should we use to most effectively expand the kingdom where we are sent? I don't know, you know, baptizing teaching sounds like effective things for expanding the kingdom, don't you? I mean, Jesus said, go and make disciples, baptizing teaching. Maybe we should do that. You know, but maybe that, that in certain cultural contexts, that may not be the right way of doing things. So here, kind of, here comes regarding ecclesiology. Here's what he says. So what expression of the New Testament church would be most appropriate in this context? What expression of a New Testament? What, what does it mean? What is an expression of a New Testament church? I mean, is, is that like lemon flavoring in water? You know, here we've got ecclesiology with New Testament flavor. What do they mean by these? What do these words mean? And it makes me wonder if they're sitting there going, well, in certain cultural contexts, certain ecclesiastical leadership models might do well there, but not well over here. Which kind of begs the question, like, what are you talking about? So if we live in red China because everyone's used to a communist dictator, that our pastor should really kind of follow that model. I mean, everybody culturally there in China understands dictators, right? So our pastor needs to be one. I mean, is that not a leadership model? You know. 
So I noted here, under the heading Ecclesiology, Stetzer and Dodson asked what expression of a New Testament church would be most appropriate in this context. In other words, the American context, well, the best expression of a New Testament ecclesiology probably should mimic the corporate world's management hierarchy, with the pastor acting as a CEO. In other cultural contexts, maybe a more collaborative team ecclesiology might be more effective. Yeah, you kind of get the idea here. And... Uh, Rick Warren, by the way, shares this idea here. Rick Warren, who's arguably the premier thought leader in the church growth movement and an expert on these things, um, he also shares Stetzer's belief that the Bible doesn't reveal an ecclesiastical structure. Said Warren, the new, in the New Testament, there is not a single explicit organizational pattern about church. It doesn't tell us how to organize the church or give us job descriptions for deacons or elders. <laughs> what? That is a direct quote. The Bible doesn't tell us how to organize the church, nor does it give us job descriptions for deacons or elders. Must be able to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine, rebuke those who contradict it. Does that sound like a job description to you? Has he read the pastoral epistles? And he says, here's what he says. So why did God leave the structure so vague? Warren says, so that it could fit in every culture of every age. This is not true. This is not true. Which then kind of begs the question. Remember what we let off with. We started with Nadia. And we talked about this hypothetical guy, right? So if somebody comes to you and they say, listen, I've adopted the CEO business model. I've got a vision for the church. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to organize around that. I'm going to get a leadership team. I'm going to cast vision down to them. And they're going to cast vision down to you guys. And it's your job to make the vision that God gave me happen. Which, by the way, is how they talk, right? Now, the question I have is, did God send that guy? Is he really a pastor? Just because he calls himself a pastor, does that make him a pastor? You go to some of these big churches, the big black churches, they have pastors of everything. The pastor of parking lot ministry. What is that? The pastor of connections. What is a pastor of connections? There's a pastor for everything. We got the worship pastor. We got this pastor. We got the children's pastor. Are, are, are they really pastors when we start talking? Does, what does the word pastor mean when you start bending it like this? I don't know what a parking lot volunteer pastor is. I don't know what a pastor of connections is. Because I don't know what the word pastor means when it's tacked on in front of those other words. So what is clear from these statements is that by failing to recognize that the church's ecclesiology is revealed in Scripture, and that the pastoral office is in fact, you know, well, an office with biblically defined functions, you know, like a job description, responsibilities and limits on its authority, and those that um, and those functions are not dependent on the cultural context in which a church exists. Yet notice that when Paul Paul when he planted churches, think about this for a second. You know, he planted churches in Galatia and. and other regions. You can look on a map, you know, Philippi and stuff like that. There were people who were ethnically and culturally different. The folks in Philippi were different than the ones in Colossae or Galatia or Pisidia Antioch. Culturally, they were different. Although they were part of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire in a real way was a melting pot culturally, right? Think about the day of Pentecost, right? The day of Pentecost, we have people from all over the Roman Empire, all over the world, different people, Medes, Persians, and, you know, all kinds of people hearing the gospel in their own languages. They were all Jews, but lived in different cultural contexts. But yet, when you read the book of Acts, 
and you read the epistles, do you know that the Apostle Paul set up the exact same ecclesiastical structure in every single church that he planted? I wonder why that is. Maybe he didn't read Rick Warren's book. Hadn't read Stetzer, right? All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions, Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's Roseboro's ramblings on the uh, pastoral office. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh. sacked the choir, and put Damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weapon are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll, I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian jerks. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay, and okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Ah, 
our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough. Now, how do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that not everybody who calls themselves a pastor is actually called by God to be a pastor, and they may not even be filling the pastoral office. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to post office box 133. 344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. And now for the balance of today's Roseboro's ramblings on the office of pastor. Here we go. 
So Stetzer, Dodson, and Warren, like so many other church growth experts, end up teaching pastors that their duties and their responsibilities and their authority are not defined and normed by scripture, but instead are culturally malleable and can change from one cultural context to another. It is this elastic definition of ecclesiology, which is almost universally shared now by most of evangelical churches and church growth gurus and leadership culture, uh, coaches, they all teach this. And uh, this understanding the pastoral office opens the door for it to be redefined and assessed according to the business world's definition of successful leaders. Now, this is where I'll switch it up a little bit here. I want to demonstrate what I'm talking about here. And I apologize if there are any Tom Rainer fans in the audience today. Tom Rainer, president and CEO of Lifeway. Um, he has a book called Breakout Churches. Have you read this book? You might want to. And so a perfect example of redefining the pastoral office and recasting it in the shape of successful business leadership is found in Rainer's book, Breakout Churches. In chapter 2 of Rainer's book, he comes right out and says that his new ideas regarding church's leadership have their origin, not in the Bible, but in Jim Collins' best-selling book entitled Good to Great. Here's what he says. Rainer, quote, in Good to Great, Jim Collins and his research team uncovered a special type of leadership they called Level 5 of Leadership. <laughs> level 5? Yeah, I want to get there someday. I'm stuck on two and a half. So the content of this chapter, Rainer says, uses Level 5 Leadership as its seed concept, and we pattern this chapter on Jim Collins' Chapter 2 of Good to great. And so from there, Rainer utterly ignores the pastoral epistles which define the qualifications, responsibilities of the pastoral office, and the type of leadership it requires, and instead attempts to uncover Jim Collins's leadership levels, which apparently they've been hiding in plain sight in the book of Acts for all of these millennia. Did you know that? It's absolutely fascinating. And so let me, let me real quick, uh, the, the five levels of leadership, according to Jim Collins, are you have highly capable individuals, a contributing team member, level three is the competent manager. I have yet to work for one of those. Sorry. Level four, the effective leader, and level five, the executive. The level five leader builds enduring greatness through a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. <laughs> I can feel the power here, right? So those are Jim Collins' five levels. So, now this is fascinating. You can find this on Tom Rainer's blog if you don't want to buy the book, by the way. On Rainer's blog, he provides a summary of Jim Collins' um, <laughs> leadership levels that he discovered in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, and in which he discusses at great length in his book, Breakout Churches. Here's Rainer's summary of these newly unearthed biblical levels of leadership. Acts chapter 1, the call leader. The early church leaders were called to be witnesses of Christ. Matthias was called to replace Judas. All breakout leaders have a definitive testimony of God's calling on their lives, particularly as it relates to local the local church. These leaders know God has called them to ministry, and they followed this call. We found 98% of senior pastors could be identified as call leaders. Now, notice here, I'm gonna, I, this is going to be really awkward, but he's doing the same thing to the book of Acts 
that Nani Bowles Weber's father did to the book of Esther? Right? Because when you want to know about the pastoral office, you go to the pastoral epistles. So, but he's discovered here, oh, there's levels of leadership in the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 2, with next level of leadership, the contributing leader. We see two main elements of pastoral leadership in chapter 2. Preaching and prayer. These may seem like obvious responsibilities for pastors, but in churches we surveyed, we only found this to be the exception rather than the norm. Only 22% of senior pastors devoted the necessary attention to the basics of Christian ministry, such as preaching and teaching and prayer. Oh, so what kind of leader are you, pastors? Are you an Acts 2 contributing leader? Are you a call leader in Acts 1? How about an Acts 3 outwardly focused leader? Or how about an Acts 4 passionate leader? Or how about an Acts 5 bold leader? I like to think of myself as that. But see, now, Jim Collins only has five levels of leadership, but check this out. Tom Rainer, he's got the Acts 6 slash 7 leader. Yeah, it's true. It's the legacy leader. Yeah. Acts 6 and 7. Legacy leaders. All oh, these are hard to find, Rainer writes. They possess the first five qualities and then some. These leaders are quick to give ministry to others and let them take the credit. They deflect recognition. They're quick to praise others and just as quick to accept responsibility. Like Stephen, they make decisions that outlast their life and further the church long after they are gone. Their burden for ministry has a focus beyond their lifetime. This kind of leader is so rare that it's found in less than 1% of senior pastors in America. So notice what he did here. So we, we take Jim Collins' ideas, and then we just use that as an overlay to discover leadership levels in the Bible that no one has ever taught before. Oh, we'll just go to the book of Acts. You know, Acts chapters 1 through 7. And we'll one-up Jim Collins. He only has five levels of leadership. We've got six. Right? Is this any way to read Acts 1 through 6? No. This is nonsense. This is a form of eisegesis. Now, we talk about eisegesis a lot on my radio program. And there's the narcissistic eisegesis. That's where you... You're, you read yourself into a biblical text where you become the hero of every story. You know, I am going to go out and slay my Goliath, right? Yes. See, my problem is, is that I always confuse slaying my Goliath with, you know, conquering my Jericho. And so, I never could get it right. And then we have this thing I call psycho-Jesus. Psycho-Jesus means that it's psychological analysis. You're reading into the biblical text, psychological analysis. So, you know, when you've got a pastor out there, you know, preaching, he's giving you psychological, he's psychoanalyzing the biblical characters. That's psycho-Jesus. This is what I call Führer jesus Now, I know that's a terrible word. It's the German word for leader. Führer. My Führer! Right? Yeah. So, the Führer, Führer jesus is reading into the biblical text leadership ideas that are not there. So this is a prime example that Tom Rainer has engaged in, in pure Jesus. And as I write, not only does Rainer believe that he's discovered Jim Collins' leadership levels embedded in the text of Scripture, a discovery that I'm certain is only rivaled by Columbus's discovery of America. <laughs> yeah. I'm a little snarky, you understand? Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> one of the sentences I quoted above also reveals that Rainer believes that 
One of the core reasons why churches in America have plateaued or are declining is because pastors have failed to recognize their biblical mandate as revealed in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts to mature into legacy leaders who are called contributively, uh, contributing outwardly focused, passionate, bold leaders who are quick to give ministry to others. Let them take the credit, but never before in the history of the church has the opening chapters of the book of Acts been used in this way. And the reason for this is simple. Collins's leadership levels cannot be discovered in Scripture via sound exegesis and proper hermeneutics. Instead, they can only be discovered in Scripture if one reads them into the text. And yet, Breakout Churches, that's one of the go-to books. Written by Tom Rainer, the CEO of Lifeway. You want to be a breakout leader? You want to be, have a breakout church? Well, you just need to learn how to discover the different levels of leadership embedded in, if you would, in the book of Acts until, well, the Tom Rainer leadership decoder ring was invented. Yeah, you kind of get the idea here. Now, you're, I mean, you're laughing because I'm being kind of snarky, but the reason I'm being snarky is to show you the absurdity of this. And my question is, is that why has the church gotten so miserable in their understanding of Scripture that they didn't immediately spot this for what it is. Why is Tom Rainer in his book being put forward as like one of the important books that you need to read if you want to have a breakout church rather than people say, this thing is teaching false doctrine because it's twisting God's word. I mean, I'll be blunt. I probably will never read that book again and I'm thinking about using it for birdcage life and I don't even own a bird. You get the idea. So if somebody claims that they're a breakout leader and they're striving to be a legacy leader according to you know Acts chapter 6 and 7, is that person rightly understanding what their role as a pastor is? No. And you'll notice, now what we've done, we've taken our eyes off the pastoral epistles, and now we're looking for to be a different kind of leader altogether than what God's Word has revealed, clearly, regarding the office, duties, responsibilities, qualifications to be a pastor. We've abandoned the clear passages and now we're chasing after this other stuff which is complete and utter nonsense. Which then leads to the most controversial piece of all of this. Now, over and again, people critique the seeker-driven movement as being too corporate, being too business-like. And there's a problem with that and there's a, and there's a reason why. is because there's a common person if you would, between the corporate world and the seeker-driven world, and that common person, his name is Peter Drucker. A lot of people do not know about this guy, and you need to learn about him if you've never read about him. Now, I promise you I've been controversial. If you remember yesterday, I read a quote from Rick Warren. I'm going to read it again, and we'll now kind of move into the most controversial part of this. Rick Warren, if you remember, I quoted him yesterday as saying, you must change the primary role of the pastor from minister to leader. What's the difference, Warren says? In leadership, you take the initiative. In ministry, you respond to the needs of others. And let me read another quote. This is not Rick Warren. See if you can figure out who this is. The people don't want ministers any longer. They want leaders. Who said it? Andy Stanley? No. That was Adolf Hitler. No joke. Yeah. 
Let's dive into this. Not all human organizations employ the same leadership model. Oftentimes, the leadership model employed by an organization, it depends on which one is best suited for the type of work that a company does. The military uses a top-down chain of command model, and many law firms employ a partnership model. Advertising agencies and media production companies thrive in a collaborative team environment. But if we were to make sense of the ecclesiastical leadership model which was developed and deployed by church growth consultants and seeker-driven church networks who bought into the, listen to this word, fascistic counter-enlightenment worldview of Peter Drucker, we must understand their ideology is what drives their model. Now, I use the F word, fascistic, and I'm not going to back off of it. Many people do not understand what fascism was, and if you don't know what it was, it's time for you to learn. Fascism was a form, basically a counter-enlightenment collectivist ideology, similar to Bolshevik communism, but different than it, importantly different, because if you know anything about Bolshevik communism, communism basically works off of this constant idea of class warfare, right? the bourgeois and the proletariat, right, they're constantly at war. So it works off of a model of class warfare. How can you have a collective, if you would, where it's always predicated on constant friction and warfare class-wise, right? You can't. Well, this is where fascism comes in. Fascism basically is a collectivist idea and uses counter-enlightenment ideology to deny the existence of the individual in time and space. Individuals do not exist in the fascistic way of thinking. The thing that exists is the organization or the organism of the community. So community is the organism. You and I are just links in the chain. We're not the chain. The chain is the important thing, not the links. The individual doesn't exist. And the fascists didn't like the communists because the, the fascists were all about the unity of the community, and you could not have true unity in the community if you constantly had warring factions class-wise within the community. So the fascist ideology strove to basically create community without class warfare, while the communists created a collectivist community with the constant class warfare constantly existing. Does that make sense? Okay. I know that it's a little simplistic, but that's kind of the basic idea. Now, what a lot of people do not realize is that Peter Drucker was a counter-enlightenment collectivist guy who denied the existence of individuals in time and space. Important thing to keep in mind. And because of that, when he gets involved in creating the modern corporation as well as in creating the modern megachurch, that ideology is what's behind it. Now the question is, how do you organize a community where you deny that an individual exists? Answer, you go to Rousseau and his social contract. Now I know this, this is a little bit of a history lesson, but here's the idea. Why is it that the American Revolution worked so well and the French Revolution resulted in the reign of terror? Answer, different set of philosophers. American Revolution, Locke, Barclay, Hume, those guys. French Revolution, Kant and Rousseau. Kant and Rousseau are counter-enlightenment, irrational ideology, whereas Locke, Barclay, Hume, they are rationalistic philosophers. 
And so that's the big difference. Two revolutions almost back to back. One is modern. The other is counter-enlightenment irrational. Does that make sense? This is why it results in the reign of terror. And um, the guys who put on the French Revolution, Robespierre and guys like that, with the reign of terror, they were imbibing heavily in Kant and Rousseau. And you cannot separate those philosophers from what happened in the French Revolution. Does that make sense? Now, just so you know, during the, well, the 19th and 20th century, there was development in ideas in these counter-enlightenment philosophies, which resulted in the 20th century manifestation of fascism, which is a political movement based upon these ideologies. That's kind of the idea. And what happened is, is that Drucker believed that the reason why Mussolini and the Nazis failed is because they were materialists. And what I mean, what a materialist is, is somebody who denies the existence of the spiritual. Everything that you can touch, everything that's matter, that's the thing that exists. God doesn't exist. Spirits don't exist. It's that they were materialistic fascists. And so Drucker actually believed, no joke, that the reason why they failed is because they were materialists. So he came up with Fascism 2.0. And Fascism 2.0 is a spiritual form of fascism. He, they call it communitarianism. And it's based upon this idea that, well, the spiritual exists, and they've kind of brought in an existential element through Soren Kierkegaard's philosophy into, into fascism 2.0. Does that make sense? We've noticed that fascism 1.0 killed everybody, because it, and we think it was because, well, they were materialists. So fascism 2.0, it's a lot, well, it's a lot kinder and gentler because we have a spiritual component. No joke. All right? Let's come back to my paper. So how do you organize and run a church if you hold to a fascistic, anti-enlightenment worldview? Kind of an important question. The answer is you use what's called the Fuhrer Principle. That's translated, by the way, the Leadership Principle. So we're going to talk about this. So Peter Drucker, who is the ideological mind behind the seeker-driven movement, along with the fascists of the 20th century, bought into Rousseau's philosophical worldview, which denied the existence of the, of the individual in time. Here's a direct quote. Here's what Drucker said. Quote, It was Rousseau who formulated the idea that whatever human existence there was, whatever freedom, rights, and duties the individual has, whatever meaning there is in the individual life, all is determined by society according to society's objective need of survival. The individual, in other words, is not autonomous. He is determined by society. He is free only in matters that do not matter, and he has rights only because society concedes them. He has a will only if he wills what society needs. His life has meaning only insofar as it relates to the social meaning, and it and as its full and so sorry as it fulfills itself in fulfilling the objective goal of society. There is, in short, here's the, the, the important part. There is, in short. No human existence. There is only social existence. There is no individual. There is only the citizen. That's a direct quote from Drucker. And that is from his work entitled The Unfashionable Kierkegaard, which over and again throughout Drucker's career said, what he said that was the most important essay he'd ever written. Drucker says, there is no individual, there is only 
a citizen. And this is the man most responsible for the ecclesiastical model employed in seeker-driven megachurches. You've got to keep that in mind. Now, to kind of explain this a little bit, Dr. Edward Youngkins of Wheeling Jesuit University, yes, I'm going to quote a Jesuit and Southern Baptist thing. Please forgive me. Um, he summarized Rousseau's idea okay, in his 2005 article entitled Rousseau's General Will and Well-Ordered Society. He said, Youngkins, the idea of the general will is at the heart of Rousseau's philosophy. The general will is not the will of the majority. Rather, it is the will of the political organism that he sees as an earth, as an entity with a life of its own. The general will is an additional will, somehow distinct from other, from any other individual will or group of individual wills. The general will is by some means endowed with goodness and wisdom, surpassing the beneficence and wisdom of any person or collection of persons. Society is coordinated and unified by the so-called general will. Rousseau believed that this general will actually existed and that it demands the unqualified obedience of every individual. He held that there is only one general will and consequently only one supreme good and a single overriding goal toward which a community must aim. The general will is always a force of good and just and it is independent, totally sovereign, infallible, and inviolable. The result is that all powers, persons, and their rights are under the control and direction of the entire community. Does this scare you? It scares me. Here's the idea. Drucker believed this. He believed that Rousseau was right. He believed that community is the organism that counts, not an individual. And by the way, when you look at seeker-driven, purpose-driven churches, what's the smallest unit in those churches? It's a small group. It's not an individual member. They don't have individual membership. Over and again, Rick Warren would say, Saddleback is a community of small groups. There's a reason for that. You know who taught Rick Warren how to be purpose-driven? Peter Drucker. Drucker took three disciples. Three. Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, and Bob Buford. Rick Warren of Purpose Driven Fame, Bill Hybels of the Willow Creek Network Fame, and Bob Buford of Leadership Network. All of them together created the ecclesiastical model being employed in seeker-driven megachurches. And Drucker was, and his ideology were the thing that were behind it. Okay, now here's the thing. Rousseau believed he was talking politics. So the general will in a collective estate is the thing that everybody is beholden to. And in their way of thinking then is that somehow mystically within a community, somebody spiritually would connect to that general will and he would become the visible leader of the community. That's what Hitler was. That was what Mussolini was. And so they're, in a sense, a spiritual leader because they can somehow embody and understand and tap into, almost magically and mystically, what the collective will is for their community. This is what's going on here. And so the seeker-driven spin on this then jettisons 
Rousseau's concept of the general will and instead puts in place a vision from God. So over and again in the seeker-driven community, a community of small groups, no individuals, you will see that they are united around a visionary leader. The leader has received a direct vision from God to do church in a particular cultural context. He then casts his vision to his leadership team, and his leadership team then, well, they are responsible for making this all happen. There's a particular flow in which orders go and authority goes and stuff like that. And this is all based on Rousseau's social contract theory, an idea of the general will and the leader that arises to do this. And we've seen this employed in political contexts in the history of the 20th century. Namely, the Nazis, they took the same idea. It's called the plebiscite model, by the way, if you want to learn the technical term for this. It's called the plebiscite model. And I'd like to read to you a little bit about the plebiscite model from the Nuremberg Nazi trials. It's a good place to learn this stuff. Um, Justice Jackson had the opportunity to cross-examine Goering, the Nazi war criminal, and ask him about the leadership principle. Now, as you listen to this, he's going to be talking in a political context. Start thinking about how this would manifest in an ecclesiastical context, like a seeker-driven megachurch, right? Here's what Justice Jackson said to Gary. He says, you are perhaps aware that you are the only living man who can expound to us the true purpose of the Nazi party and the inner workings of its leadership. Gary, I'm perfectly aware of that. Jackson, you from the very beginning, together with those who were associated with you, intended to overthrow and later did overthrow the Weimar Republic. Gary, that was, as far as I'm concerned, my firm intention. Jackson, and upon coming to power, you immediately abolished parliamentary government in Germany. Gary, well, we found it to be no longer necessary. Also, I should like to emphasize the fact that we were moreover the strongest parliamentary party and, that, and had the majority, but you are correct when you say that parliamentary procedure was done away with because the various parties were disbanded and forbidden. Now, real quick note here. Um, when the Purpose Driven Network or the Willow Creek Association or Leadership Network teaches a church to transition from you know, the shepherding model to the seeker-driven vision-casting leader model, do you know what they get rid of immediately? All voter assemblies, all voting, Robert's Rules of Orders and everything like that, all parliamentary procedure, gone. Doesn't exist. And there's a reason for this, because the individual doesn't exist. The leader has the vision from God, not any board or elected officials or anything like that. Same thing happened in Nazi Germany. I told you I was going to be yeah, controversial, by the way, just, just so you know. Jackson, so you established the leadership principle, the Fuhrer Princip, which you have described as a system under which authority existed only at the top and is passed downwards and is imposed on the people below. Is that correct? Authority's at the top and it's cast down, right? Garing, in order to avoid any misunderstanding, I should like once more to explain the idea briefly, as I understand it. In German parliamentary procedure in the past, responsibility rested with the highest officials who were responsible for carrying out the anonymous wishes of the majorities, and it was they who exercised the authority. In the leadership principle, we sought to reverse the direction, that is, the authority existed at the top, 
and passed downwards, while the responsibility began at the bottom and passed upwards. Is this not the same thing that vision casting leaders do? It's the, well, it's the plebiscite model, if you're a princip. Jackson, in, in other words, you did not believe in and did not permit government as we call it by consent of the governed in which people through their representatives were the source of power and authority. Caring. That's not entirely correct. We repeatedly called on people to express unequivocally and clearly what they thought of our system, only it was, well, in a different way from that previously adopted and from the system in practice in other countries. We chose the way of the so-called plebiscite. And we also took the point of view that even a government founded on the leadership principle could maintain itself only if it was based in some way on the confidence of the people. If it no longer had such confidence, then it would not rule, then it would have to rule with bayonets. And the Fuhrer was always of the opinion that it was impossible in the long run to rule against the will of the people. Jackson, uh, but you did not permit the election of those who should act with authority by the people but they were designated from the top downward continuously, were they not? Garen, quite right. The people were merely to acknowledge the authority of the Fuhrer, or let us say, to declare themselves in agreement with the Fuhrer. If they gave the Fuhrer their confidence, then it was their concern to exercise the other functions. Thus, not the individual persons were to be selected according to the will of people, but solely the leadership itself. In a secret-driven megachurch, if you oppose the vision of the vision-casting leader, what happens to you? You are excommunicated, and in some cases you have restraining orders sent against you. So here's the idea, kind of the long and the short of it, if you would. When you abandon the biblical model set up in Scripture for the church's organization, the offices established in Scripture, pastoral office, and you don't call men to fill those offices. And you do not demand that they exercise the authority and the duties of that office, but instead believe that, you know, it's kind of like anything goes. That doesn't, I, I see elders, deacons, uh, bishops, it's all so confusing. Ah! What matters is that we have some form of leadership. Then you're open to, well, just about any kind of leadership. And in the seeker-driven movement, the leadership model that has been developed and deployed is the same model used by the 20th century fascist governments. It's based on Rousseau's social contract. It's the plebiscite model of the vision-casting leader. And there's a reason why we have so many of the distortions we have in the church today. And think of it this way. I know this is going to sound crazy. We, we talk about heresies, right? We talk about heresies. We talk about, well, Christological heresies. We talk about heresies that have to do with the denial of the biblical gospel. We can talk about uh, you know, heresies that deal with the nature of God. It makes me wonder, if our, in our day and age, if we're not actually dealing with an ecclesiastical heresy. Because the one thing I know for sure, over and again, when I look at what Scripture reveals... There are qualifications for an office that men are to fill, and there's duties that they are to fulfill in the course of being in that office. That they are servants of the word, and servants of the church, not rulers and reigners and leaders who pound their fists and cast vision and demand allegiance and things like that. None of that's going on. And so, so many of the men who call themselves pastors today, they're not. 
nor were they sent by God, nor were they put in that office or the whatever offices they hold by the Holy Spirit. We're dealing with an ecclesiastical heresy, and the well, the impact on the church has been devastating. Depart from what Scripture teaches regarding who's to be doing what, and you open yourselves up to all kinds of men who come with all kinds of ideas, and none of them are from God. Thank you for your time. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.